the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. After being diagnosed with two deadly and unrelated forms of cancer, each time with a dire prognosis, today's guest, Sean Swarner, astounded the medical community when he survived both diseases. Sean not only survived, he went on to accomplish feats that the majority of the world's population can only dream about achieving. With one lung and the spirit of a warrior, Sean has redefined what is possible. He is the first cancer survivor to stand on top of Mount Everest, but that isn't where the story ends. From there, he stood atop the highest point on all seven continents, skied to the North and South Poles, and completed the Hawaii Ironman. Sean continues to defy the odds and test his own personal endurance. He offers hope to cancer patients worldwide through his nonprofit organization, Cancer Climber. He's a motivational speaker and author of the book, Keep Climbing. Sean has been featured in the documentary, True North. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That was a great introduction. Thank you so much. Well, it's a great introduction because that's your life. And I'm so happy that you're coming back on the show. You were on, I think it was about five or six years ago when I first heard of your story. And it's such an amazing story. So for those who may not be familiar with you, your story and your work, Tell us about what happened to you when you were age 13. Oh, sure, sure. That's back in 1988. So if anybody's good at math, they can, <laughs> they can figure out how old I am. Um, back in 1988, I was, uh, you know, just living a regular, normal, Midwestern teenage life. You know, my backyard was uh, uh, either a cornfield or a bean field, depending on the season. And uh, it, it was it was great. You know, I was just uh, on, on the cusp of my, my life, I suppose, and a knee injury in basketball, I uh, eventually ended up changing my life forever. And as a 13-year-old in the eighth grade, the doctors diagnosed me with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, at the time, they told my parents, hey, your firstborn son only has three months to live. Were you experiencing any other symptoms at that time? And, and I ask that because I have a brother who passed away at age 14 in 1961 from acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and he passed away from diagnosis to death was 10 days. And before that, there really wasn't anything that my parents or anyone had picked up on. So in your life, what, what were you feeling before that knee injury? Honestly, just like your brother, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. It, it sounds very similar. Um I had no swelling of the lymph nodes. I had no night sweats, nothing, absolutely nothing. But it's weird because that knee injury ended up making every other joint in my body go so haywire. My entire body, pretty much every joint in my body swelled up. And obviously, my, my parents knew something was wrong. They took me to the hospital and the local doctor and, and the hospital system in Willard, Ohio, tried treating me for pneumonia. And you know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get any better if, if, I'm, uh, if, if I'm fighting cancer and sucking on a nebulizer. Right. So they, they took me to uh, Columbus, Ohio where the hospital system was much bigger and, and they had uh, proper um, tools to diagnose what I had. So, you know, after a number of CAT scans, bone marrow tests, 
I can't tell you how many blood uh, vials of blood were taken from me. I lost count of the, the purple tubes that they took. You know, that's when they did diagnose me. But no, I, I never had any symptoms whatsoever. And what was your treatment like? That, that time around, so the first cancer, it was strictly uh, chemotherapy for roughly a year. Um, I also had, uh, I was on prednisone, and they gave me a, um, an anti-nauseal uh, medicine called Compazine that actually I had an, an allergic muscular reaction, and my eyeballs rolled back in my head. I, I couldn't control it, and I would hallucinate. I would uh, go blind. I mean, it, was, it was absolutely awful. The doctors did not expect you to live past a few months, and you're going through this torturous treatment. How did you emerge from that initial diagnosis? You know, I, I think looking at it, you know, if, if you look back at your life, if, if anybody looks back at their lives, there are certain turning points. And I believe one of my turning points was when I was in the shower and, you know, it was, it was a couple of treatments in and I would, I would be washing my hair and every time I brought my hands down, they were covered in hair. So I was losing my hair all, all at once. And I, I collapsed to the floor, you know, and the water was, was hitting my scalp and, and not my, my hair anymore. So it was a completely unusual feeling. And I, I started crying. And I was just overtaken with these emotions because I, I knew I was losing my hair. And I started thinking about what my friends were doing that morning. And they were probably, you know, worried about uh, being being popular. They were worried about uh, wearing, you know, the, the coolest clothes, the nicest shoes, whatever it might be. And I was literally worried about my life. So at, at 13, you know, I... I developed a completely different perspective on my life and, and on, on life in general. And I think at that moment, I, I, I was faced with two choices. I could either give up or, 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 and die or, or fight for my life. And I think I tried to see things a little bit differently. I, you know, I, I was almost forced to because if I didn't, then I, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now. I'd be dead. Did anybody ever tell you that you were terminal? Did anyone ever say that you were going to die or supposed to die? No, no one told me that directly. They told my parents what the prognosis was, but they never told me. In fact, my step-grandmother passed away from lung cancer uh, three months before I was diagnosed. So my parents didn't want me to associate cancer with death. So they just told me that I was sick and that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know, they didn't tell me, hey, you have, you have cancer because they didn't want me to associate that negative stigma with it. But a lot's changed since then. And, and uh, back then, I, I, I was, like I said, 13. I was nosy, just like any teenager is. Um, I went down to the library and I investigated, uh, did a little research and found what Hodgkin's lymphoma was. And that's how I found out that I actually had cancer. Mm-hmm. Second time around was different because I went through the first one. I didn't want to go through it again. Do you think, because I'm such a firm believer in the power of our thoughts, do you think not attaching death to your illness had anything to do with you surviving? I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I, I think that there's, I'm a huge believer in the mind-body connection. And it, while I was on the, the, the shower floor, it, my hair coming out all at once, like I said, crying my eyeballs out, pulling chunks of hair out of the drain so the water could go down. I also focused on something a little bit differently. And, and like I said earlier, my perspective changed. And at that moment, I wasn't focused on not dying. I was focused on living. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's the same idea, but a completely different way of looking at it. And, and the best way to describe it is if you're walking down the street and you're telling yourself not to do something, which is focusing on the negative, like don't trip, don't trip, don't trip. Well, you're, you're going to end up tripping and falling on your face. But if you turn it around from a positive perspective and you tell yourself, stand tall, walk strong, same concept, different perspective, but you're not focusing on the negative, you're focusing on the positive. So going back to your question, I wasn't focused on not dying. I was focused on living. So Sean, you went through that diagnosis and and that treatment and you emerged from it and, and everyone believed that you were healed. What happened a few years later? Oh, life, life was awesome until I was going in for a, a regular checkup a couple of years later. And in one day, they found a, a tumor on an X-ray by my, by my right lung. Uh, they did a needle biopsy. They took out a lymph node. They put in a Hickman catheter. They cracked open my ribs, took out the tumor, put in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than one day. And I was diagnosed with a type of cancer that affects three out of a million people with a prognosis of 6%. So then what was that treatment like? You were, what, 16 at the time? 16. So the first one was 13. Second one was 16. I went through three months of intense chemo, one month of intense radiation therapy, and 10 or 11 more months of chemotherapy. And every time I was actually in the hospital uh, being treated, the doctors put me in a medically induced coma because it was so harsh. Uh, I, I honestly don't remember even being 16 years old. You know, there, there, I've had moments of, of uh, uh, clarity. I, I have flashbacks every once in a while. 
that uh, you know if, if I'm visiting someone in the hospital, I'll smell saline solution and it'll it'll boom trigger a, a memory, which is just crazy, and you know it, it brings back all these emotions and, and this, this these flood of, of feelings. But this the second time around was much worse because no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Aspen sarcoma before. And so by traditional medical wisdom, you were supposed to die. They gave me 14 days. Okay, so you went through that horrific treatment. And once again, by the grace of God, you survived. So as time went on, you decide that you want to climb Mount Everest and you have one lung. So where did that idea come from? And and what did people say to you when you actually said that out loud? <laughs> Probably what what most people are thinking when they're hearing you say that. <laughs> What's wrong with this kid? Um, yeah, but you know what, Sean? Put the cancer and the one lung aside, and I'm still saying it. <laughs> exactly. So I remember when I when I actually left. Dad looked at uh, looked at me and he hugged me and he literally said, "We didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a honk <laughs> rock night." So most people didn't exactly think it was a stellar idea. And, and believe it or not, within the climbing world and the medical community, a lot of people thought it was physiologically impossible to climb to basically the altitude where jumbo jets level off and fly, you know, with one lung. They just didn't think it was physiologically possible for the human body to handle that. It essentially goes back to the, uh, the, the thought that if, if you think it's possible or not, you're absolutely right. Did you have any climbing experience or were you just an average person who said, I'm going to start mountain climbing and... I'm going to climb Mount Everest. So the idea came to me when I was studying for my master's and my doctorate in psychology. I was going to be a psychologist for cancer patients. thought I had a lot to offer, but I wasn't ready yet. You know, emotionally, I, did, I didn't heal myself. But I, I knew that I wanted to, to give back to the cancer community. And when I was living in Jacksonville, Florida, did some research and found the highest point there was Four Seasons Hotel in Miami. So... I'm not too sure many mountaineers train in hotels. And then moving in Colorado, I lived out of the back of my Honda Civic and, and camped for a couple months. But when I when I moved out to Colorado, I literally climbed everything in sight. And I, I climbed and I did something every single day to get my body in shape. So I had nine months to train when I moved out here. My office, essentially trying to get sponsorship and support for this, was literally a payphone bank in the library. I had everything stacked against me, but I, I continued believing that it was true. And I continued believing uh, that, that it was going to happen. And eventually, nine months later, I went over with, with little, I wouldn't say none, with very little um, mountaineering training. However, uh, when I did finally get to Everest, I had read everything I could get my hands on. I had my body in shape and I had my mind in shape, which is the most important part. And you had a a strong motivation. I mean, I would imagine, I I remember when my son was 12, he was um, playing third base in baseball and he took a ball directly to the mouth and he knocked out teeth. And then I remember when he came back to the sport, he wanted to be a pitcher. And I said, my gosh, you know, I'm thinking go in the outfield, like get away from the ball. And he's saying, you know, I've been through this horrible experience. I've been through the worst. What else can happen? And I guess when you go through something like you did and you survive that, you you almost get this fearless type of attitude, not reckless, but fearless. As long as you do your part, there's really nothing to be afraid of. I mean, did that come into play for you? I I think it it definitely did. You know, I I had been through the worst in my life. I I wanted to to prove to myself that I was still alive. But also, you know, now with with everything I'm doing, I take what I call calculated risks. Right. You know, I, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year as a fundraiser for, for the Cancer Climber Association. And I've been up there. This will be my 16th time on the mountain. And I take calculated risks. So I, I know what the uh, what, what the ramifications of my actions are. And I know that I'm putting myself in danger sometimes. But I'm not going to push myself to limits because just like my dad said, you know, a hunk of rock and ice is never worth a life. So right. if something happens. I'm, I'm always going to retreat. It, it's unlike going through treatment. You know, on the mountain, I can always pick up the satellite phone and say, hey, get me out of here. You know, I, I, there, there's bad weather coming. I, I, I sprained my ankle, whatever. But when I was going through a treatment and everybody who's going through treatment, you know, they don't have that lifeline of saying, hey, you know, I don't I, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm, I'm going to come back next year and attempt it again. You know, they don't have that option. Originally, your, your driving force was to offer hope to people that were battling cancer to show them that anything is possible. And you accomplished that by climbing Mount Everest. So why then did you feel 
or, or have the desire to go on and do the remaining summers and then to ski the North and South Poles? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a question I think a lot of people are asking over and over again, including my parents still. You know, I, I, I think it goes back to when I was younger, my parents instilled uh, an attitude in me that really resonates with me still. And they always told me when I was swimming, you know, I, I believe it or not, I still have records from, from, you know, 1987, 1988 that I'll probably, hopefully never be broken in swimming. It was amazing at that time. And one thing they instilled in me that I took from that is that I never had to be the best. I just had to be my best, you know, stop comparing yourself to others, compare yourself to yourself and where you were yesterday, do a little bit better today than you did yesterday. And I think by doing that and thinking uh, about it that way and looking at life that way and trying to improve myself a little bit more each day, I think I improved myself and I wanted to uh, to go in and climb these other mountains to just slowly push myself a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I also wanted to take a flag that had names of people touched by cancer to the top of each continent. It, it started with Mount Everest where I had a flag that had hundreds of names on the on the on it to the top of the world. And then I went and did the same thing on the highest point on every continent, the South Pole. And then at the North Pole, I took a flag that has thousands and thousands of names of people touched by cancer because everything I'm doing, uh, like I said before, you know, I'm pushing my body physically and mentally, but people who are fighting for their lives, they can't, they can't throw in the cash and the chips and say, hey, I'll, co- I'll come back at another time. Right. You know, that's where my inspiration comes from. And I really think that if they're pushing through what they're going through, I can push myself and, and put up with 80 below temperatures. We're talking about cancer patients or people that are going through, uh, you know, really extreme challenges in their life. But your messaging relates to anyone, no matter what you're going through in life. And, and even if it isn't a horrible challenge, just it's a great philosophy that we should incorporate into our daily life. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, one thing that people don't really understand is uh, human beings are a representation of repetition. So if you think about it, when a, when a mother or a mom, I get the same thing, I call them moms, some people call them mothers. When a mom wakes up in the morning, she has a routine that she does. You know, she might get the kids ready for school. The dad does the same thing, might get the kids ready for school, eats breakfast, does whatever. Then there's also, you know, a meteorologist. What does a meteorologist do every day when they wake up? What does an Olympic athlete do every day when they wake up? You know, the patterns are different. The repetitions are different. So human beings are a representation of our repetition. If people want something a little bit better, change something, you know, and they have to remember that consistency is more important than intensity. Just constantly do one small thing over and over and over that'll make a huge difference in your life over time. So, Sean, it's been a little over 30 years since your first diagnosis. How is your health now and have you had any scares since that time? I have not really had any scares yet. Um, knock, knock on wood. I hope you heard mm-hmm. that. I, I have been incredibly healthy. I eat, you know, incredibly healthy. I, I try to stay away from the junk food, the processed foods. Uh, every once in a while, you know, on the weekend, I'll, I'll sit down just like everybody else. I'll devour a bag of potato chips, have some beers, but that's just that's not the regular. You know, the normal is uh, like this morning. What did I have for breakfast? I had some. Uh, some oatmeal with some almond milk instead of water, and I ground up some flaxseed and some coconut chips, put a little bit of honey on there, made a little bit of, uh, I didn't make it, I had some. Uh, I had some peanut butter and an apple, mm-hmm. you know, and that was breakfast. And in my coffee uh, this morning, I had just black coffee with a little bit of uh, coconut oil. So I, I stay away from sugars, and I just eat as healthy as I can. When you look back over your life and, and you reflect on things that you've experienced. I know I always try to find the lessons or the purpose in things. Have you ever thought about why you experienced those cancers and then nothing? Do you ever think the purpose behind them that maybe you were chosen for this life? You know, I I think about that a lot. I I used to think about that a lot. Let me rephrase that. I used to think about that a lot. And and everybody who, who goes through something traumatic, you know, it could be a car accident, it could be a death of a loved one, it could be cancer, whatever. You can sit there and ask yourself, why me, why me, why me, you know, a thousand times over, but you may never know the answer. You know, there, there might be a higher purpose for what you're doing. There might not be. I and mean, you could drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out. So for the longest time, I tried to figure out why I had cancer. And yes, it might be to, to give hope and inspiration to others. But I don't know if people are getting that hope and inspiration. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. But I could also drive myself crazy trying to figure out why. But the, look, looking back at it, looking at the facts, the facts are it was me. That was what happened. 
You know, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about the past. There's nothing I can potentially do about the future. What I'm doing right now is living my life every moment. And I wake up every morning, I tell myself, no matter what happens today, today's the best day ever. So you're doing important work today for cancer survivors through your Step Up program. Can you tell us about that program and what are your goals? You can go to thenextsevendays.com with the number seven, thenextsevendays.com, and you can look at a, uh, a mild version of a program where I'm trying to help people understand the conscious decisions they make based on their core value system can help direct their lives. You know, I'm, I'm sure as, as you've gone through life, as I'm sure as, I, as I've gone through my life and everybody's gone through lives, you, you get to a point where you're like, huh, something feels a little bit off. You know, there, there's a little friction there between what I'm doing and how I feel. And that's because people slowly stop making conscious decisions. And what happens is you get further and further away from your core value system. And if you can start looking at that, you know, you can look at what values you have and you can slowly bring yourself back to um, that relationship of yourself and a relationship to your core values. And if you figure out what motivates you, so that internal dialogue and listening to that, you can intrinsically motivate yourself forever. And that's what this is about. It's, it's about helping cancer survivors step up into their new normal based on their core value system and their conscious decisions on what they want. And so once again, that website is thenextsevendays.com. And also, if our listeners would like to get more information about Sean and his work, you can visit seanswarner.com. Sean, in our final moments, if you could sum up your messaging, what would the takeaway be? What would you like to leave our listeners with? You know, that's a great question. I think there are a bunch of different takeaways people could walk walk home with. And I think it's just stop stop being more concerned about what others think of you than what you think of yourself. You know, it boggles my mind that there are so many people who are more concerned about what other people think of them than what they think of themselves. Stop being anybody but you and push yourself a little bit more each day and step up into your new normal. And do that through tapping into your core value system. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, I'm so happy that you came back on the show. You also had some happy news, right? Something exciting happened to you recently. What was that? (laughs) I'm assuming (laughs) I finally got married. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations from all of us. And, you know, the way you've lived your life, it's such a beautiful example of the strength of the human spirit. And, um... You teach us that there are no excuses, and if we want something, we can work hard, do our part, and it is absolutely achievable, and you show us that. So thank you for being here, and thank you for inspiring us. Ah, Very grateful for your time. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. Dr. Berndorf is co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, 
a guide to your emotions during pregnancy and motherhood. She's here today to discuss perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. So, Doctor, we experience so many hormone changes and emotions when we're pregnant and after giving birth. What are perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, also known as PMADs? What I like to say is PMADs, or PMAD, uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Perinatal means around, right? So around birth, around pregnancy. So before, during, and after pregnancy. So that encompasses that whole time range. And mood and anxiety disorders is somewhat self-explanatory. Mood disorders are the depressive type disorders. And anxiety disorders are things like, you know, worry, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder. And it also includes things like OCD and PTSD. So there are many things included in this acronym, which I actually love because I, all, I often say PMADs are, are the new PPD, right? Postpartum depression used to be the only thing we had heard. And thankfully, we people started to hear that term because when I started doing this work, no one even knew about that. So, but PMADs are the new PPD. And, and the reason why I think it's so great to have this phrase that sort of catches a lot of things is because postpartum depression had people thinking, oh, it has to be in the postpartum and it's got to be depression. So if I feel anxious and I'm pregnant, I don't have it. So it was such a beautiful way uh, you know, nomenclature is always so hard, but it, and it's still not that easy, but at least it en- encompasses so much more that we don't get confused, as confused with, you know, depression or just postpartum. So it's much broader. Who gets these types of disorders and what causes them? Anyone can get them. Believe it or not, um, any woman who is, you know, pregnant or postpartum could have this. Now, there are certain people who are more likely, so those people who have a history of any kind of anxious or depressive disorders. Anyone who's currently having an anxiety or depression um, while they're trying to get pregnant, while they are pregnant or in the postpartum is going to be more likely, right? If symptoms are present at the time of, particularly at the time of around conception, right? They are more likely to go on to be something worse um, or more deep. And I would say with family history. So if a lot of women don't know what's happened in their family, and when they start to experience problems like this, they'll say, they maybe they tell a sister or a mother and they say, oh, I had that too, but, but you may not have known. But so it's family history is quite important as well. If a woman is at high risk, is there something she can do even before conceiving? Great question. Prevention is always great. Now, you can't always prevent it, but again, if you are symptomatic and you haven't conceived, or if you have or otherwise, get help, right? The best thing you can do is to reach out and get and find help because if you treat these illnesses or treat symptoms, you know, you tend to be able to get them sooner. You might be able to do talk therapy or different kinds of treatments that are non-pharmacologic. Once a disorder is really underway and, and, you know, you can sort of get behind the eight ball and then you are more likely to need a medication intervention, which again is, is perfectly reasonable and you want that as an option. But getting things identifying, knowing that this ran in the family. I often see women who will come in and say, I don't have anything going on, but I want to talk about it now. What are the signs and symptoms of it so that if I start to see it, I'll know what to do. If a woman is diagnosed, what can she do about it then? What would the treatment be? Well, there are a variety of treatment options. So they range from, you know, like I said, non-pharmacologic interventions, and those are, you know, talk therapies. There are many different kinds, CBT, IPT, DBT, there are all these different acronyms that we use, but they are sort of short-term therapies that go after the issue and the symptoms at hand. And um, uh, then there are longer-term therapies, talk therapies, psychodynamic treatments, many different kinds of those. And there are also things like light therapy. And um, there are other, again, I keep differentiating these from non-pharmacologic interventions, there are are, uh, all different kinds of things you can do, but at a certain point, um, or if you need to act more rapidly because the illness is more progressed, you're often talking about medications. And we, I want to say very clearly that, that many medications are considered relatively safe during pregnancy and postpartum, 
right, during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So when, if and when we need to go that route, which is a lot of what I do as a psychiatrist, is, to, is assessing the need for a medication or not, we have a lot to choose from. And that's a very interesting consultation with a woman and her partner often in thinking about how bad are the symptoms versus you know, what are the potential risks of medication? Because you have a risk no matter what when you're thinking about medications and you have a history of illness. You have the illness versus medication. That's how you think about it. And I wanted to just get that in because that's not something people often think about when they, when they get down the line of thinking medications might need to be an option for treating what they have going on. Dr. Berndorf, thank you so much for being here with us. If you would like to get more information about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, or if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Berndorf and the Motherhood Center, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Berndorf, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Catherine. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Imagine what your life would be like if you could replace anxiety with tranquility, self-doubt with self-acceptance, and insecurity with certainty about your life purpose. Today's guest, Joanna Garzilli, says it's possible when you learn how to manifest miracles that lead to breakthroughs in your life. Joanna offers tools to help you activate your genius and cultivate ideas so you can create the outcomes you desire. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joan. It's wonderful to be with you today. So, Joanna, if you've written a book about spiritual rules that can help us make positive changes in our life, and and you say that a big miracle is when we create our ideal life, one that's bigger and better than we ever imagined. It, it's our heaven on earth. And I know many people want to do that, but have no idea how to begin. So what's the first step to creating a big miracle? Yes, and I understand that people wonder the how. From what I see is that life can get quite overwhelming, especially now that we have this added dimension of social media. So the first thing that I would say to be able to even get into the headspace and the alignment where you can go, Okay, big miracles are possible, is to see yourself as a miracle. And, and to do that, there's a couple of things. First of all, that you're more than your mind or your body. You are this energy animated by spirit. When you woke up this morning, you probably didn't think about how you're making your heart beat. You, you're not thinking, where am I going to get my next breath of air? You don't have to be concerned about how to operate. So I share these things because there's a lot that is keeping us alive and we don't have to worry about it. What if we could expand that faith, that trust, that we're going to keep living, that everything's going to be okay. If we could expand that to the idea for our relationship with our family, with our loved ones, in a romantic relationship, in terms of our finances, in terms of our career, how much more enjoyable life would be. Well, you know, Joanna, at the foundation then what you're saying is that it requires a connection with something bigger. And I think many people have lost that connection. Do you believe that is why there's so much unhappiness and searching going on today? For some people, I feel that they haven't ever made the connection. Somehow it has been marginalized. Other things have taken a priority. People feel so overwhelmed. That's the biggest thing I see. People feel either overwhelmed or they feel disheartened by the way that the world is. And yet there is so much beauty in the world. And I think that a first useful step for people can be to reframe the way that they see things. Mm -hmm. But really, some people were just never educated of how to tap into their instincts, their wisdom, the importance of attuning to their own spirituality. Things have just got lost along the way. So yes, for some people, it's about reconnecting to it. But for others, it is not something that is being focused upon. So Joanna, building upon this, we make this connection and then we need to figure out a way to gain a clear understanding of what it is that we want to achieve. So from your experience, 
What do you recommend is the best way to set that intention so that we know what direction to take? Well, the, the first thing there is that if you are not aligned, if you don't feel an alignment in yourself, then how are you going to feel good about the intention that you set? How are you even going to know if the thing that you want is the right thing for you? There could be a lot of doubt around that. So going back a step, align with spirit. How do you know you're aligned or misaligned? In its most simplest form, you know you're aligned when you feel good. And if you feel bad, then you're misaligned in some capacity. And so how do you get into alignment? I really like this process. Very simple meditation. One can do it more in depth or one can do in its simplest form three steps, which is to center, to ground, and to connect. Being able to close one's eyes, to focus inwards, to bring one's awareness to one's heart, take a deep breath, exhale, let go of the overwhelm, the fear, and just say, I I have access to whatever the wisdom is, the insights that I need. I just need to open myself up to connect to that. So that, that is a, the simplest form of connecting to one's intention. It's hard to go deeper into ourselves, into our intuition, to trust ourselves, especially if we've made mistakes in the past and especially if we've got a lot on our plate and also if there's a lot of resistance in one's mind, internal programming that just says the inner critic right this is no you can't you won't and you don't have evidence already of it in your life so what makes you think that you can go and do that now but there has to be that starting point so I like the idea of focusing on creating a big miracle is a seed within your heart and you just need to water that seed but it's hard to water the seed when that soil in your heart is filled with weeds. The weeds don't mean that something bad as such, but there there has to be an acknowledgement of, okay, here's my inner landscape. And if I want things to change, if I want to create space for big miracles to happen, I'm going to have to do something differently. And that's where forgiveness would fit in to clear out some of those weeds, forgiving yourself and others. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's just coming back to that idea of, well, where is the silver lining? What can be learned from a negative experience? What happens when you're the one that makes the mistake? Because the idea of forgiving mistakes, right? Either we're making the mistake or someone else is. And when we make a mistake, carrying the, the weight of that can paralyze one from moving forward with the big miracle that they're creating, something that they have in their heart that they're passionate about. And if someone else makes the mistake, it can paralyze you in terms of you feel as if, well, how am I going to go after the thing that I want because everything is against me or something is wrong. And so in forgiving mistakes, it creates space, space from an energy standpoint to be able to say what can be learned. I think that's the biggest thing from mistakes. And and then it, it takes away a massive amount of pressure. You know, for each person, their idea of mistakes are different. But if we just come back to that rule, it can change everything for us. And it's really important to get ego out of the way. Yes. But there's an important distinction here. Having a certain amount of ego, I think, is healthy and is necessary. Otherwise, we would never step into the spotlight, right? You wouldn't take the leadership role that you are. And so a little bit of ego is a positive thing. But when the ego is unevolved, when the ego is saying you can't and you shouldn't and you're not enough or it's judgmental of others, that is when it's a negative thing. And so it's being able to find that balance to be able to say, where am I living with unhealthy ego here? And then what am I going to do? What I think a great way to solve that is to look at what do you need to do for yourself? Where are you depriving yourself of something? And when you find that, that helps you move beyond to transform that unevolved ego into something positive. And Joanna, I believe that growth requires us to move outside of our comfort zone. What's a tip that you can offer someone to take action? When you are focusing on getting outside of your comfort zone, which is rule 11, you don't want to do something that is going to absolutely terrify you to paralysis. I believe that it's doing something that scares you and there's that fine line between fear and where you feel really alive and really present. But do something where that you're not good at, something where you can come back to having a beginner's mind. 
for me, one of the ways that I got outside my comfort zone was I went to a singing for actors class. That was terrifying for me because I know that I am not naturally a good singer. I'm not a trained singer. And I remember being in the in the class with everyone and the teacher said, is there anyone here who's tone deaf? And I really thought I was tone deaf. I put my hand up. So he did some musical notes and then he asked me to follow the the, the notes. I went beetroot red, but I, I did it. And he said, you're not tone deaf. You just, you just haven't been taught how to sing. And I think it's like that for so many, for so many of us in different areas of our life. We all start off where we have to learn. And that's the power of getting outside of our comfort zone is it allows us to unearth talents within us and to cultivate skills that can be so richly rewarding, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. The book is Big Miracles, The 11 Spiritual Rules for Ultimate Success. If you would like to get more information about Joanna and her work, you can visit her website, joannagarzilli.com. Joanna, thank you so much for being here with us and for providing tools to help us create the outcomes we desire. I agree with you. We all deserve a big miracle. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Joan. We'll be right back. What if your doctor told you to take a prescription medication to treat high blood pressure? You'd take it, right? And what if you were prescribed a medication for exercise that could treat or even prevent high blood pressure and more? Would you follow that prescription? I'm Christina Nemec, co-founder of PATH Health Consultants. Here at PATH, we focus on using lifestyle to prevent and manage health risks. We're a workplace wellness firm dedicated to improving the bottom line of the organizations we work with. Our innovative, personalized approach to wellness supports employees as they adopt and sustain behaviors that improve or maintain their health. In addition, we offer a variety of health seminars and workshops to companies interested in educating and supporting their employees in a group setting. Oftentimes, prescription medications simply treat the symptoms of a disease, but they don't actually cure it. Exercise prescriptions are different. They are developed by fitness professionals and are specific to the individual needs of the person they're written for. When followed properly, prescriptions for exercise can actually reverse many diseases, like diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. As a result, the need for prescription medications can be dramatically lowered or even eliminated. If you'd like more information on workplace wellness, please contact us at pathhealthllc.com. That's pathhealthllc.com. Do you know someone applying to college and want to give him or her a killer tip? Hi, I'm Scott Doty, performance coach, productivity guru, and the founder and chief brainiac of Northern New Jersey's most awarded tutoring company, Brainstorm, which offers private in-home tutoring for all school subjects, standardized tests, and indeed, college applications coaching. If you weren't already aware, there's something called the Common Application, and the majority of American high school students will apply to their private or public colleges or universities via the common application and to do so they need to write an essay it's a scary thing that a lot of people don't know how to tackle and here's a very simple tip there are seven prompts on the common application for the essay the students have the opportunity to choose any one of the prompts to answer what i always tell my students is pick the prompt that is least answered the one that everyone is avoiding there's very clear data on this of the seven prompts the one that you want to answer is prompt three it says reflect on a time when you questioned or challenged a belief or idea what prompted your thinking? What was the outcome? Last year, only 4% of all applicants answered that prompt. So if you want your answer to really stick out, just pick the right prompt to answer. Again, my name is Scott Doty from Brainstorm Tutoring, and I hope to hear from you soon. You can reach us at stormthetest.com. We have all experienced the upsurge in healthcare costs and corresponding increases in health insurance premiums. Since providing benefits is critically important to a business's success, Many employers pass on some of the premium costs to their employees so they can continue to sponsor a plan. It also is common for employers to reduce the level of benefits to offset the impact of the annual premium increases. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants, located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. While no one can control the cost of health care and the corresponding insurance premium, it may help to understand the key contributing causes. They are 
Advancements in technology, hospital expenses, prescription drugs, malpractice lawsuits, fraudulent claims, inefficient administration, legislatively mandated benefits, aging population, poor lifestyle choices, and finally, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, commonly referred to as Obamacare. There is no easy solution to this situation, but we can all do our part by using network participating providers when possible, requesting generic or preferred drugs when appropriate, understanding your benefits plan to avoid unnecessary out-of-pocket costs, getting pre-authorization when required, calling member services when in doubt, getting involved with decisions affecting your health care, getting annual well care exams, questioning expenses and reporting fraud, and using urgent care facilities, outpatient surgical centers, as opposed to emergency rooms and hospitals when possible. These are just some of the areas in which we as educated consumers can make a difference. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website, psi-consultants.com. When was the last time you cleaned out your closet? Hi, I'm Sonica Guadara, certified personal fashion stylist and founder of Style by Sonica. It can be difficult to let go of pretty things that once made your heart flutter or that sweater a relative knit for you. Or what about those pair of jeans you keep saying you'll fit into once you lose the weight? Justifying to keep pieces you no longer need, especially the ones that you spent hard-earned money, can be a daunting task. But when your closet is full to capacity, a closet edit is a must. Especially if you are constantly saying that you have nothing to wear with a closet full of clothes. Once you have decided it's time to edit your closet, take in mind the following key factors when doing the edit. Does the garment fit? Have I worn this in the last year? Will I wear it again? Is this in style? Would I buy this today? And last but not least, do I feel confident when wearing this? If you say no, it's time to let go, donate, sell, or toss. If you want to learn more about me and personal styling, visit me at stylebysonica.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss how moms can create a mission statement. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Joan. It's always great to be with you. So, Amy, when we think of a mission statement, we think of the business world. What made you come up with the idea of creating a mission statement for motherhood? Well, you know, Joan, um, I worked in the corporate world, and I worked for both a financial firm and a toy company. And when I, when I was working, it was very current back then for every company and even every department within the company to have a written mission statement. And that mission statement outlined what the overall purpose of the company or that department was. And so while becoming a mother is one of the greatest joys, it's also one of the biggest transitions of our lives, uh, right? So it can be a bit overwhelming. So in the midst of the day-to-day maintenance, so to speak, I found all of a sudden when my daughters were young that it was really important for me to take a bit of a broader view and um, to look at my role and write a mission statement as a mother. And, you know, Joan, I have it on my nightstand. I see it every morning and evening, and I've actually incorporated an exercise about writing a mission statement for mothers into the class I offer. And I have been doing this for, you know, mothers for quite some time now, and it's been really eye-opening and empowering for mothers to take this vantage point. And it's been awesome to witness them realize their mission 
as a mother in their own words. Amy, how do you believe this statement can help a mother? Well, it reminds us to keep the overall goal in mind. As I said, it's really, it's almost too easy to get caught up in the daily grind of doing stuff. And we need to remind ourselves as mothers, we're raising the next generation. And that's big stuff. So by reminding ourselves of the importance of our overall mission and writing that down, we really allow ourselves to stay grounded in what's important. And again, we empower ourselves, and then we're able to make choices that align with our mission as mothers. Would you share your mission statement with us? Sure. I'll, um, I'll summarize it for you. My daily mission as Catherine and Courtney's mom, is to nurture our two daughters to become the confident, compassionate, cooperative, content, and capable young women who God intended them to be. They fulfill their potential as I guide them each day with a sense of creativity and courage. I'm thankful to enjoy the simple moments with our girls, and I love them wholly and forever. So now, of course, that's my personal wording, and especially the use of God and even each of the characteristics I chose to, to nurture within my daughters. Um, but when I do the exercise in class, it's really dynamic to see how each mother chooses to write her own mission statement. It's really an empowering exercise. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Amy and her work, or if you'd like to get a copy of her book, you can visit amymcollins.com. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. I want to be riding my bike. But at this moment, he's fighting leukemia. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care. I will never have to pay St. Jude for anything. Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.